When was the last time you played uh, Follow the Leader? I'm, I'm talking about the schoolyard game, Follow the Leader. Um, do you remember the principles of the game? You follow the leader. Real, real simple. How? By paying close attention to all that the leader does and doing precisely the same. Why? Why do you follow the leader? Well, because he's the leader. Um, he's been designated the leader. And while the Christian life is, is not a game, it, it does have some analogies to follow the leader. Uh, this morning, as we open God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, we find Peter telling his readers that they are to honor the governing authorities, that they're to be subject to their bosses. Peter tells his readers to follow the leader. But here's the catch. The leaders, the leader in this passage, is or are not the governing authorities or bosses. The leader is Jesus. So how, how do we follow Jesus? We follow Jesus by paying close attention to all that he has done and doing the same. Why is he the leader? Well, he is the leader because he's been appointed by God the Father as our Savior and because he is the true Lord. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from God's Word. If you, if you haven't done so already, let me invite you and encourage you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking, looking at verses 13 to 25. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 1015. The, the first readers of this letter of 1 Peter were God's elect exiles scattered throughout what we know today as modern Turkey. Uh, these believers in Jesus, they were facing oppression for their faith. They had refused to conform to the passions of the world, and so they were greeted with surprise and scorn, and in some cases, slander. Peter wanted to remind the recipients of this letter that they are strangers and sojourners, and that they should live like it. That their hearts and ours don't find a final home here on earth, and so Peter tells them and us to embrace our exile. Peter has said that embracing our exile, embracing your exile, means that we must live this day in light of the last day. That we must love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we should long for God's word. And that we should serve the Lord Jesus by proclaiming him with our lives and with our lips. Now, here's the thing. Just because we are sojourners, just because this earth is not our final home, does not mean we can disregard life in this world. Being exiles doesn't mean that we can check out and not care about this world, its governing authorities, our work, or our relationships. Quite the opposite. In fact, in order to live faithfully before our Heavenly Father, we must be diligent servants on earth. That's what Peter turns to address next in this letter. From this point forward in his letter, beginning at chapter 2, verse 13, and stretching through chapter 3, verse 7, Peter's going to turn and address various institutions and relationships that we come into contact with in this world. Specifically, Peter will address four relationships, two of which we'll look at today, and Lord willing, should the Lord Jesus tarry, two of which we'll pick up next week. This week we'll see that Peter, he, he addresses... Uh, all believers in their relationship to the wider society, including government. 
And then we'll also see Peter address believers who are servants and slaves and their relationship to their masters. And here's, here's the basic message from Peter. Live like Jesus. Follow his lead. Live for Jesus' sake. Live for Jesus' glory. And we'll study Peter's instruction for all believers and Peter's more particular instruction to servants in two sections under two headings. Fear God, that's point one, and follow Christ. That's point two. Fear God and follow Christ. And these headings are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. They're they're summaries, really, of Peter's main thrusts in each of these sections. And as we turn to our our first point, fear God, follow along as I, I read verses 13 to 17. And, and as we read, as you read, consider how, for, for Christians, Peter's command to live in, in subjection to various human institutions requires the fear of God. And, and by fear of God, we mean the, the, the reverence of God and the, the recognition of His supremacy and sovereignty. So read, read 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning there in verse 13, verse 13 to 17. Be subject... For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. All of the the commands in this section are undergirded by a revering and fearing of our God. In verse 13, you see there, we're told to be subject for the Lord's sake. We do this, we obey this command because we, we revere Jesus. We fear Jesus. We fear God. And, and then toward the end of this section, that's what we're told explicitly, right? Fear God. Everything in between is done, not because it's the normal thing to do, but because it is a distinctively Christian mindset. Remembering our God who rules over all. He is our leader. We are subject to Him, and He tells us to be subject to others. Which leads us back to the first two words in this section, doesn't it? Be subject. If there's one thing the Bible constantly does, it's this. It challenges our impulse of superiority. With the opening two words of verse 13, be subject, Peter commands an attitude and an action that goes against the natural grain and gratification of every human being. And the idea in the original language is that believers are to submit to the orders, the directives of someone else. Who wants to be told, be subject? Who wants to be told, put yourself under someone else and do what they say? From before the time that we were toddlers, we've been inclined to rule our own lives. More precisely, in line with our text, who wants to be told, put yourself under social structures, institutions, and governments? Maybe this would fly for Peter's first readers, but this is America. Uh, We are fiercely independent. We like to overthrow authority. We do not suffer kings. Well, Peter's command applies even here in America. It applies here. 
If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we must be subject to every human institution. And more than a command to be applied, this is also a virtue to be acquired. A spirit of humility. Pride will prohibit a submissive spirit. And if you bristle at this command, a command directed to all believers, consider whether pride might be lurking nearby. We would be wise to ask ourselves, when I come into contact with authority in this life, is my first inclination to be suspicious or to be submissive? We live in a fallen world, so authority will be exercised imperfectly, to say the least. Yet we must remember that the problem is not with the existence of authority. The problem is not with the existence of authority, but the sinful exercise of authority. Remember that it was Satan who first generated suspicion of authority in this world. In the main, we should have an attitude of of, of subjection, a submissiveness to the authority that God has placed in our lives. Recognize that Peter is commanding that believers in Jesus take orders from every human institution. And that phrase, uh, every human institution, is, is something like a heading for Peter. Kind of explains what follows, or is summed up by what follows. And, and we've got to be careful not to read Peter woodenly here. Uh, when, when Peter says that we must be subject to every institution, he's not saying that you must heed the orders of the governor of North Dakota. Uh, unless, of course, you live in North Dakota. Uh, Most precisely, Peter means that we are to be subject to those human institutions which have a direct bearing and authority over our lives. Peter commands obedience to human institutions from top to bottom. You see how he, he lists them out there? From the emperor as supreme or to governors and at the local level. For us, this means that we must obey the laws of the land written by legislators and signed by the president. We must obey the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia and the ordinances of the counties we live in. And honestly, this command is irritating. Uh, I I don't like it. I don't like some of the regulations uh, that are out there. But it's it's not the command that is in the wrong. But me, and and maybe you. Uh, Christian, you should be the best citizen. We should be the best subjects of those who are in offices of governing authorities. And if if your political bent wishes to throw off authority, reject it as a whole, or is inclined in that direction, then consider changing your political bent. Uh, Consider bending your life and beliefs around God's word instead of making God's word bend around your life and beliefs. Here's, Here's why. Governmental authorities are sent by God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. According to Paul, 
And according to Peter, this is the role of government, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, governments in this fallen world will do this imperfectly. We all, we all know that. Uh, some will even pervert justice, calling what is good evil and what is evil good. For those of you working in government, recognize government's limited capabilities and capacities. Recognize that government tends to be more of a blunt instrument uh, than a surgical instrument. No doubt you're already looking for loopholes to this command. You're wondering if this submission is, is absolute. If the, if the emperor asks us to pay tribute, to give an offering at the local temple, is Peter saying that, that we should submit and do that? Well, that would have been a real scenario for first century believers, for those that Peter was, was writing to. Many Christians in the first century were asked to worship Caesar at the local temple. And a great number of Christians said, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. They did not worship Caesar. They refused to sin. And they suffered for it. They, they disobeyed Caesar. The, the scriptures clearly teach that there are times when we must disobey the governing authorities. Because we are called to obey God over men. To, to fear God more than fearing man. We can think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused to, to worship and serve the gods, the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up in Daniel chapter 3. We can think of Daniel himself when he disobeyed the edict not to pray, and so he was thrown in the lion's den. We can think of uh, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John's refusal to obey the ruling Jewish council's orders to stop preaching in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when they said, we must fear God rather than Man, we must obey God rather than man. In each of these instances, we see that these believers feared God more than they feared man. So yes, there are times when believers may and must disobey the governing authorities. And when should that be done? It seems that disobedience to the governing authorities is permissible, even required, where believers are most personally and directly coerced or called to sin. Such as in those examples of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and Peter, and John. Where the governing authorities most directly and personally seek to coerce you to sin, you must say no and not sin. You must fear God more than you fear man. Peter is here commanding believers to honor the governing authorities. And no doubt their, their tax dollars in the first century were going to some very wicked things. They paid their taxes but they did not worship Caesar. Something akin to this is the case with our tax dollars here in the 21st century too. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, ought to call evil what is evil. It is evil for the government to financially support the abortion of the unborn with tax dollars. It is evil for the government to enforce an unbiblical and unnatural gay and lesbian sexual ethic upon its citizen and to support the defense of such actions through tax dollars. It is evil for the government to support physician-assisted suicide. It is evil for the government to label biblical speech hate speech. Everything that God says is good. We must disagree with such laws and legislation. We must call for the change of such laws, and we must vote for the change of such laws. Romans chapter 1, verse 32, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7, warn us 
warn believers not to put our hands to evil. So, brother or sister in Christ, think carefully about who you vote for and what you vote for. I am not telling you who to vote for or what to vote for. Rather, I'm telling you what the scriptures say you must not do. You must not approve of or put your hand to that which is evil. In your vote, you are putting your hands to a person and their policies. And as best you can, avoid putting your approval, your hand, and your vote to those things which are evil. And those of you who who work in government, keep doing your best to adopt laws that accord with justice and mercy. Keep endeavoring to put your hand to those things that are good and gracious in God's sight. And in doing so, you express love for God and love for your neighbor. The scriptures clearly teach that there are times when we disobey the governing authorities because we are called to fear God over men. In fact, there's a clue in our text that this was the case. There in verse 15, we read this. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, by honoring the emperor and the lower and lesser governing authorities, you might close the mouths of those who suggest that Christians are anarchists, or rebels, rabble-rousers. You see, from virtually the very beginning, Christians were thought to be opponents of Rome and its government. On the one hand, it's understandable why, why they might think that. Rome had a king. His name was Caesar. Some of your translations may even translate uh, emperor king instead. Rome had a king. But Christians claimed and still claim that our king, Jesus, is the king of kings. That he is the Lord of lords. He rules not a localized empire, but a universal empire. Still, even though Christ our king rules over all earthly rulers, that does not mean we can throw off and reject governing authorities. Instead, through honoring the emperor... Christians can end the foolish talk of their neighbors and positively puzzle them when they actually do disobey. Wouldn't it be puzzling to our neighbors if we were the best, most respectful, and most obedient citizens, even though we have significant disagreements with our government? Wouldn't it be puzzling to our neighbors if they hear us disagree with our government in those things which I mentioned before? Their promotion of abortion, the promotion of aberrant sexuality, wrongful labels of hate speech, assisted suicide, and yet not be disrespectful in doing so. Wouldn't that be puzzling? We must disagree without being disagreeable. When necessary, we must disobey without dishonoring. We must do what is right and righteous without being self-righteous. Though we cannot obey in these sinful matters, we must obey in every other non-sinful matter. This will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Why do we do this? Why do we honor and obey the government? We do it, Peter says there in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. And typically when Peter refers to the Lord, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. We obey every earthly law. We obey every earthly law we can because ultimately we revere and fear Jesus. We want to honor His name above all names. We we don't honor the governing authorities because we want to avoid pain. 
We honor the governing authorities because we want to bring glory to Jesus and lead others to fear and revere Him. And, and since it's an election year, and I've already mentioned a few things political, let me just mention one more thing. Uh, this command from Peter applies regardless of the party in power. You must honor the governing authorities regardless of their party affiliation. The only party that matters is the party who reigns on the throne of heaven. And he says this to us. He says through his word, honor the governing authorities. This is how we live as people who are free. Verse 16. This is another qualification that Peter inserts into our ethic as exiles. We have been set free from slavery to sin. But Peter tells us we must not sin. See, the dynamic that Peter's readers and we find ourselves in is this. We live in a world in which some sin is not unlawful according to earthly governing authorities. We live in a world in which some sin is not unlawful according to earthly governing authorities. But... Because we have been freed by God, and because we fear God, we are servants of God. So we must not sin. We are not free to sin. You can break the law of God and not break the law of man. But Peter says, don't do it. Don't break the law of God. Live as a servant of God. Do good and not evil. Do good according to the law of God, not the law of man. That's how you live free. And verse 17 ushers in four rapid commands that summarize the life of freedom and fear of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And honor the emperor. We must honor everyone. We must remember that all are made in God's image and therefore worthy of dignity, compassion, care, and honor. High estimation. On, on Thursday night, uh, our, our community was discussing this verse when one brother pointed out that it's easier to dishonor others when we view them as less than human. Uh, we must fear the God who made all men and women and we do that by refusing to exalt ourselves in pride over others. We must honor everyone. And, and that includes refusing to lift some up higher in our estimation due to their position, place, prominence, or power in our society. We honor others, not because of what they have accomplished or done, but because of what God has done. He has made them in His image. We, not only are we called to honor all, but we're especially called, you see there, to love the brotherhood. In other words, we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, Peter is enunciating a similar mindset of what we see the Apostle Paul say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. There Paul wrote, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Believers are to do good to all as we have opportunity, but they are especially to do good to those of the household of faith. There's actually a priority in God's plan, and it's believers. Christians are especially to protect, provide, and extend physical care and spiritual care to one another. 
We are to honor and love all. But we are especially to love and honor our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lest we forget, remember Jesus' words in John chapter 13, verse 35, when Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If we're honest with ourselves, then we'll admit that we probably honored others far too little. We've loved our brothers and sisters far too little. But perhaps worst of all, we've feared God far too little. Uh, Too often, we've lived as practical atheists, taking God's name upon our lives and yet living uh, in in a way that reflects, that does not reflect its worth and weight. We've taken God's name upon our lives and lips lightly and esteemed Him too little. Our reverent worship here Uh, week in and week out, helps us to to push against that tendency. So those who lead in thoughtful prayers teach us how to come to our Heavenly Father with the reverence that is due to His name. What is most striking about verse 17, though, is the fact that we are told to fear God and honor the emperor, which is precisely just what we are supposed to do with everyone else. Honor them, too. We are to honor the emperor, but we're not to fear the emperor. We fear God. We honor the emperor, yes, but we're to fear God. We don't worship the emperor. And, and emperor worship was running around in the first century, but Peter is telling us who we worship. We worship God. We don't worship kings except the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king. We don't worship presidents or political figures. We don't put our hopes in the rulers of the earth or those who aspire to be rulers of the earth. We put our hope in God. And yet, simply because we do not worship the emperor or the president or the governing authorities doesn't mean we disregard or dishonor them altogether. No, Peter reaffirms we honor the emperor. Remember where Peter is writing this letter from. He tells us at the end of this letter, if you flip over toward the end, you'll see it. He tells us he's writing this letter from Babylon. That is ancient Christian code for Rome. The city and seat, really, uh, where uh, the emperor ruled from. The notorious Nero may very well have been ruling at this time. Peter was killed by Nero in 64 or 65 AD, shortly after this letter, we think. Peter is living out the commands that he gives. Just as Jesus lived out the command he gave, in all of his interactions with the rulers who killed him, Jesus honored Pilate and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas. He disagreed with them, but he did not dishonor them. Added to this, Jesus feared his heavenly Father above them. Both Peter and the Lord Jesus have walked the path that we are here exhorted to walk in these verses. Fearing God and honoring earthly authority is a distinctively Christian approach to life in this fallen world. Virtually every other religion and worldview falls off on one of two sides. One can either worship the government and its leaders as the answer to all of their problems, or one can consider the government and its leaders worthless. Christians do neither. We neither worship the government nor consider it worthless. Instead, we fear God, and because we do, we honor the governing authorities as those sent by Him punish evil, and to praise good. 
Well, having addressed believers and their relationship to the wider society, particularly with respect to governing authorities, in verses 18 to 25, Peter turns to address believers who are servants and slaves and their relationship to their masters. Peter's exhortation in this section could be summarized by the two words, follow Christ. Follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 now. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There are two waves that kind of wash over us in these verses. First, Peter addresses the very real and painful suffering of believers who are household slaves. And then, Peter points his brothers and sisters in Christ to the sufferings of Jesus. In brief, Peter shows us Jesus and says, follow in his way. In in verse 18, Peter addresses servants. And that term is perhaps better translated household slave. Not simply slaves, mind you, but household slaves. The word's not doulos, but oikata. And this was a subset of slaves in the Greco-Roman world. And in many respects, what we're examining here is something that's that's pretty unique. These household slaves in view are different Uh, than the wicked chattel slavery that took place here in the United States of America. Uh, Though they were often the most vulnerable class in the Greco-Roman society, many uh, household slaves were trained in differing vocations. Uh, Some were actually doctors. Uh, Others were officers in the Roman military. Uh, Still other uh, slaves, household slaves, were managers of of large estates. Uh, Some were teachers, and as such, uh, some of them were actually better educated than their masters. Uh, Some of these slaves were so financially prosperous that they could have purchased their freedom if they wished to do so. But there were also those in this class that had less prominent careers and employment. Many were often directed to menial and manual labor. According to some estimates, there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Many of the early believers in Jesus were household slaves. So Peter's teaching here is pertinent. In fact, according to one Christian named Clement, uh, some believers willingly sold themselves into slavery so that they might both free and feed others. Being a slave in the eyes of the world did not mean that you were less than your master. 
in the eyes of God. This is the one, of, one of the profoundly shocking things in the early Christian church. Your master could be your brother in Christ, equal in the sight of God. Remember verse 16, Peter has just called all believers free. And in the same verse, he also called all Christians servants or slaves. There's a sense in which what we are looking at here is analogous to employment in our day. Uh, Often in our day, employers and employees will enter into a contract, an agreement. Uh, Both parties make promises. Both parties have duties. Both parties face penalties for failing to keep their obligations. But it's that last element that both parties may face penalties for failing to keep their obligations. That last element was not always present in the Roman world and in this relationship. So entering into agreement and entering into the service of a master in the first century as a household slave was fraught with uncertainty. This arrangement could have some serious drawbacks. And none of this, though it is different uh, than the, the wicked American chattel slavery, none of this should lead us to believe that Peter is condoning this institution, much less promoting it. No, Peter is neither condoning nor commending this institution. Instead, he is telling Christians how they must follow Jesus in it. And as we see from Peter, he acknowledges that there are some good and gentle bosses. And there are also some unjust bosses. This is still true today. We should appreciate how the scriptures are always honest about how they always relate to us. Peter is not trying to paint these employers and their relationships with their employees with too broad a brush. Uh, Some household slaves really were blessed by their bosses, but others were really burdened, and sadly some were beaten. Being submissive and respectful to the former is much easier than the latter. And though the circumstances are different, the command is the same to whether you have a good boss or a bad boss. Be subject to your masters with all respect. That is what Peter expected believers serving in the role of household slaves. That's what he expected them to do, even those who sadly serve bad masters. Now, we're going to spend most of our time unpacking what Peter says to employees, but here, I want to usher in a word of application, not merely to those who are employers and bosses, but to all of us, to all who exercise authority. Because we all have authority in varying ways, and we must be careful how we exercise that authority. We must remember that in the exercise of authority, we are either telling the truth about God, or we're telling a lie. We're either telling the truth about God, and about who He is, in the exercise of our authority, or we're lying about who God is. We're called to exercise authority not for our own glory, but for God's glory. We don't exercise authority for our own selfish ends or our own comfort or our self-promotion, but for the good of those under our care and the glory of God. We don't exercise authority to build ourselves up, but to build others up and lead them to flourishing, to fruitfulness and faithfulness. And if you want to know what kind of authority you seem to exercise... Look at the fruit of those under your leadership. Do those under your authority become fearful and frail? 
or do they flourish? Do those under your authority become fearful and frail or do they flourish? Do they they branch out to be productive and bless others? Or do they wilt and wither under your leadership? Think about that in the context of the various relationships you have. Husbands. Husbands, are your wives fearful and frail? Or are they fruitful? Are they flourishing? Parents, are are, are your children growing fearful and frail? Or are they flourishing? Youth and young people. Those of you who are older siblings, perhaps sometimes put a responsibility of your younger siblings. Uh, Or team captains. Uh, Do those under your authority become fearful and frail or do they flourish? Employers and managers, do those under your authority become fearful and frail or do they flourish? We don't exercise authority to build our own little kingdoms, but to reflect something of the priorities and the values of the kingdom of God, which are service, sacrifice, And selflessness. If you have sought to use your authority for selfish ends, you ought to repent. You ought to repent. Seek the forgiveness of those under your care and seek to serve them. That's how Christians use authority to serve others and sacrifice for others. Because that's how Jesus used his authority. In verse 19, Peter tells us how how grace is operative in such a difficult situation. When believers suffered unjustly and endured sorrows, which was incredibly likely when it became known that they were Christians, they were to do so mindful of God. They were to remember that they fear God, that they must trust Him to right all wrongs in the end. What they were enduring was not right, And Peter knew it. But he also knew that they had an opportunity to imitate Jesus. As we'll see in verses 21 to 23. For now, in this fallen world, Christians are to remain focused on doing good and abstaining from sin. That's mostly what Peter is addressing there in verse 20. If you, as a household slave, must suffer, Peter says, then let it not be for sin. Let it be for doing good. That is... Believers need to do what is right and righteous in God's sight. This is when, for a second time, which means Peter must be wanting to reinforce this, for a second time, Peter reminds believers that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God when they do good and suffer for it and endure. God sees. God knows. God cares. And He will reward His people for their faithful endurance as he's already promised in this letter. We will receive the inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. We will live from day to day, even in difficult work environments in light of the last day. And that means we we honor our bosses. We must be careful about how we speak about them and how we speak to them. We won't collect around the water cooler with our coworkers and complain about how they're handling this project or that. We won't malign them when they're not present. Or malign them when they are present. It means that we don't have to have the last word in a conversation with our bosses. It means that we serve. Not for their pleasure. 
Not for our boss's pleasure, but we serve for the pleasure of God and with the goal of picturing Jesus. We do excellent work, not to avoid a beating or a berating, but so that our true master, the Lord Jesus Christ, might be known. Now, thankfully, many of us in the Western world have recourse when our bosses become brutes. Should a boss physically assault his employees, then an employee may call the authorities and a boss may be arrested. Justice may be administered. That would not be wrong. In fact, it would be right. If you find yourself in an abusive relationship with your employer, then you should seek counsel. Seek counsel from trustworthy and wise believers. Possibly seek legal counsel and perhaps take legal action. That is normally available. And it might be good and wise and right for you to pursue that. The truth, though, is that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ living outside of the Western world do not have such recourse. I can remember when my parents were serving as missionaries in a Muslim country. I often heard about how their fellow believers were persecuted in their workplaces. When it became public that they followed Christ, their Muslim bosses would often harass them and mistreat them. And if they went to the governing authorities, they would receive little to no sympathy and sometimes worse. What were they to do? They could seek out a new boss. But much like the household slaves in the first century, there's no promise that they could find a new master, a new boss, or there would be a new job, another job available for them. Or even if they did find one, if that master or if that boss would be any better than the last. So what must a believer do? Sadly, a believer might have to endure. He might have to do good, endure mistreatment for doing good, and cling to the hope of the revelation of God and His grace in his life. And it is at this point that Peter says something startling. Do you see it there in verse 21? Read verse 21 again. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might, so that you might follow in his steps. Were you startled by this verse? Especially by the beginning of verse 21. Did Peter actually say that believers were called to this? Could it be that suffering for Jesus Christ is not an accident but an appointment? In fact, that word call means to be summoned or invited to complete a task. Peter is saying that believers have been summoned for suffering. And let's be clear, this is our calling. It's not our fate, as one believer said. We're summoned to this for the purpose of following and imitating Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered for you, and now you are being called to suffer for him. That's something of what Peter is saying. You are being called to walk in the way that he walked, to trace your life out on his, and to place your feet in his footsteps. You, Christian, are called to follow Christ. In what way? Well, Peter tells us, dear Christian, don't sin. Verse 22, Jesus didn't commit sin, so don't sin. Dear Christian, don't lie, but always say what is true. Because Jesus did not lie. Dear Christian, don't revile. 
when you are reviled. Because remember, Jesus did not revile in return. Dear Christian, when you suffer, don't threaten to get revenge. Jesus did not threaten. Instead, he trusted. So you too ought to trust. Jesus trusted God the Father when he was being unjustly condemned and crucified. But Jesus knew that his suffering would one day, actually in three days, give way to glory. Christian, know that the path and pattern of Jesus' suffering is the path and pattern of your life and your future. We will suffer, but we will also enter into glory. We can endure now, entrusting ourselves to our faithful Creator, because we will enjoy His presence for all eternity. These are our practical counsels from Peter. But Peter, he also opens a massive can of worms there in verse 21, doesn't he? It's one thing to say that Christians have been summoned to suffering. It's quite another to say that Christ suffered for you. Jesus suffered to provide for us an example, but he did far more than that too. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, verse 24. He suffered for us because we have sinned against God. And sadly, we've all sinned. We've all lied. We've all reviled. We've all threatened. And sometimes we've actually sought revenge. But not Jesus. Jesus was sinless. He never did any of those things. Jesus bore our sins in His body. He took our sins and He took the judicial punishment against them to the cross. He was executed on a Roman cross, but it was on that cross that He endured the eternal wrath of God the Father against our sins. Jesus suffered body and soul for us, for our salvation, for the salvation of our bodies and souls. And in the Old Testament, the priest, he would lay his hands upon the head of a lamb, symbolically transferring the sins of Israel to that sacrificial lamb. And then that lamb would be with his death. But here Peter is saying there was no symbolism. There was a real transfer. He suffered for us. He really was our substitute, standing in our place, bearing our punishment, bearing our sins. And though he was innocent of all sin, he was charged and condemned as guilty for all of our sin. Christ was crushed under the weight of our sins. Crushed by the wrath of the Father. And so he went down into the grave. But three days later, he got up from the dead. And in his resurrection, Jesus proved to us all that God the Father has accepted Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for sinners like you and me. He was accepted by the Father. And when we place our faith in him and are united to him, we too are accepted by God the Father. And quoting Isaiah 53, Peter tells us, by his wounds you have been healed. Now, Imagine, imagine just how powerful those words would have been to household slaves who were wounded and beaten. Imagine household slaves who had been beaten touching their wounds as they heard Peter tell them, 
By his wounds, you have been healed. As they placed their hands on their arms and legs and felt their scars, as they felt their wounds, they remembered Jesus' wounds. And as they hoped for healing, they would remember that they have been healed and that one day all would be healed. How, how is it that Jesus heals us by his wounds? Listen, listen to the prophet Isaiah. As he, as he writes in Isaiah 53, prophesying concerning Jesus' death. And, and interestingly enough, this section of the prophet Isaiah, these are called the servant songs. And who are we thinking about here? We're thinking about servants. And so Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has, this is the servant of God, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Do you understand what Peter is saying? He's saying that Jesus is our Savior. The the suffering servant that was prophesied in Isaiah. The suffering servant that saves us from our sins. Peter's saying that we're healed by his wounds. Jesus had to die that we might live. We deserve an eternal wounding for our sin against God. But God has provided forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation for sinners like us through the wounding of His most beloved Son. Friend, have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of your sins? And here's the truth. Your sins must be punished. There is no escape for any sin. All sin must be punished because God is just. Either you will bear the punishment for your sins or Jesus has borne it for you. Friend, have you you been straying from the Savior You have been straying from the Savior, the shepherd, the overseer of your soul. And it's time for you and your straying to come to an end. To come to Him and to receive His forgiveness. So turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him, the one who says, I have paid for all of your sins. There's not one that you have to suffer for. Come to me, Jesus says. Jesus is our example. He is also our expiatory and propitiatory sacrifice for our sin. And his righteous work empowers us to stop working in sin and to start working in righteousness. Here's another reason why Jesus died. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body On the tree that, this is a purpose clause, so we could say, so that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his grace, we now have power that we did not have before. 
We can consider ourselves dead to sin. We have been freed from its condemning power. And we have been freed from its controlling power. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say no to sin. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can refuse to revile. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can trust instead of threaten. We can follow Jesus. And in verse 25, Peter tells us that though we were once straying, we are now following our good shepherd. This too is one of the, one of the glorious comforts of this passage. The shepherd and overseer of our souls has been down the path of suffering. Jesus doesn't call us into a suffering he hasn't experienced. He is, as we confessed earlier, a sinless and sympathetic Savior. He's been through suffering. He knows where we have been, where we are, and even where we are going. We can trust him. We can trust him to make us lie down in green pastures. We can trust him to lead us beside still waters. We can trust Him to restore our souls. We can trust Him to lead us in paths of righteousness. We can trust Him to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we need not fear any evil, for He has been there before. He is with us, and He will comfort us. We can follow Him because He has suffered for us. We can follow Him because He has borne our sin in His body on the tree. We can follow Him because we've been healed by Him. And we can follow Him because He is the Good Shepherd and the Chief Overseer of our souls. Brothers and sisters, this is the leader we follow. He is the leader who rules over all. We can submit to every human institution. We can honor those from the highest office down to the lowest office because we fear our God who rules over every office. He is the one who sovereignly put them into office and can remove them from office. We do not need to fear the governing authorities, but we do need to honor them. We may need to disobey, but we can do so without dishonoring. We also need to honor those in authority over us in our workplaces, whether they are good or bad. We need to follow the example of Jesus. And as we do, remember that he suffered for us and for our salvation. Jesus showed us that our God in heaven is trustworthy. So as we suffer, we suffer entrusting ourselves, giving ourselves into the hands of God. He judges justly. He will right all wrongs in the end. We don't have to revile or threaten, we could take refuge in Christ and trust our Father in heaven. Our Lord Jesus is the leader that we can always trust, always submit to, and always follow. Let's pray that God would give us the grace to do that now. Let's pray together.